Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Thank you very much, Colin, and uh, thank you very much to so many of you. It's very flattering. You do me a great honour, so many of you coming this evening. And uh, I'd forgotten exactly how cold it gets in Canberra, <laughs> <laughs> having been away for a little while now, but uh, I'm well reminded and I've brought my gloves. Uh, but thanks very much for coming out tonight. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge John Kerrin, who's here in the audience this evening, of course, a, a great uh, Labor figure and contributor to the Hawke government and uh, Andrew Lee, the member for Fraser who is here and with whom I had the pleasure of uh, serving in the House of Representatives and I can assure you, uh, those of you who live in his electorate but in any event in the greater Canberra area, um, he is one of the most effective, intelligent uh, members of Parliament. I mentioned to him as we came in that he managed to come through the Labor system, not having been supported by a particular faction, and, um, but one through a democratic process, which always just goes to show that democratic processes are pretty worthwhile, and I have a couple more things to say about them. But uh, welcome to all of you and to many others here uh, who I've known for some period of time too, including some former staff members of mine. Uh, it's, uh, I make the observation in, in my book that I feel a little uncomfortable about doing a book, uh, and I had been approached by Melbourne Uni Publishing and its uh, um, chief executive, uh, Louise Adler, a number of times to make a record of the things that I'd been involved in in the labour movement over the years. And she approached me in, while I was uh, serving as a minister in the government and I was very firmly uh, opposed to the idea at that time because I felt concerned that to do a book when you're serving parliamentarian is generally a statement other than an economics book of the nature of Professor Lee. Um, <laughs> but, but to do a biographical tome as a serving member of parliament, it's, it's pretty much a statement of ambition and can lead to some questions being asked and the sense of instability. And we had quite enough of that, to be honest. And <laughs> I didn't think it was a great idea, but Louise approached me again after I, pretty much as soon as I left Parliament and I decided to do the book uh, for some specific purpose and I hope for those of you that have the opportunity of reading it that you look at it in this way. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I love the Labor movement, the trade unions and the Labor Party and have given much of my working life, of course, to the Labor movement. It's never easy... I have a few other things to say about that when you're fighting for what you think is right. But it's extremely important to, I think, provide a window on what the Labor movement does and what it achieves and to try and inspire others and particularly young people to be involved and to fight for the values that you might hold. And obviously I hope you hold the values of the Labor movement. But that's what shapes the country people who stand up and argue and fight for what they believe in. And I've made a little bit of a practice of that and uh, I hope that that's evident uh, through the book. But fundamentally the purpose is just to try and encourage some others uh, to do the same because the labour movement in this country is really, I think, from many, in many respects, the oldest, most enduring institution that we have had since colonisation. Its, its values have helped shape this country in very important ways. The fight for fairness, for justice, for decent treatment, for equality of opportunity, for equality of access to employment, to education, to health, to housing. The fight for democratic rights, for people to have an equal say. 
regardless of your socioeconomic origins, to have an equal say in the society, to participate in elections. All of these things reflect the values of the Labor movement and they're things that have been fought for over many years. And the Labor movement's not been some shining example on all fronts at all times, far from it. Over the years, of course, it's reflected many other values of the society, including sexist values or racist values as you go back. But fundamentally, there's an enduring set of principles, beliefs and values that the Labor movement has sought to enact in a societal-wide way. And they've shaped the country, the fair go. But if you, if you go right back to convict times, many people who were convicts in trying to improve their lot, gain more rations, you know, earn, the, earn better rights or respect, they've tried to join together in those convict days, but in doing so, in trying to join together, in understanding intuitively the power of being organised and speaking together with one voice to gain an advance in your standard of living, of course it's been met with harsh punishment. And the values that I articulated earlier, these things are not just given. They're beliefs, but they have to be fought for. And there's always one uh, example that crossed my mind numerous times <coughs> when I've been thinking about the origins of the labour movement and was a convict named James Strater. Now, cop this. In 1822, this is what you confronted if you were embarking upon the roles and responsibility of someone akin to a union delegate. But a convict named James Strater received 500 lashes, one month solitary confinement on bread and water and another five further years of penal servitude for inciting his master's servants to combine together to negotiate collectively in pursuit of an increase in rations. So that's what you copped in the early days as a union organiser. <laughs> and in some respects, it hasn't got that much easier. <laughs> I looked with interest at the front page of the Financial Review, or was it the Oz uh, today at a union official in Queensland and the sorts of things that you're still subjected to. I know nothing about the merits of the case, but it just crossed my mind that it's still a pretty difficult path for people to take. The fact is that this country's been a very brutal country for many people, and not the least of which, of course, Australia's Indigenous population. And if you just think about their struggle for rights, for fairness, for decent treatment, where it's at now and where it still needs to go, the fact that there's still no recognition in our constitution of the prior occupation of this land <coughs> and the fact that Aboriginal people had to wait for about 180 years after colonisation, 180 years before they even received recognition as citizens <coughs> of this country. It's been a very brutal place for a lot of people and not an easy place, if you'll forgive me for introducing class terminology, uh, for working class people in this country. It's a pretty hard life for many people who have worked very hard, have worked in very hostile environments, um, fought hard for their rights and to be respected in their workplace and in their communities. And the labour movement's been at the heart of that fight for people. And joining together to improve each other's lives it's the organisational basis of unions and the labour movement. And, of course, as I said before, it goes long, a long way back, well before Federation. Unions were forming in the first half of the 19th century. They were pretty well organised in many trades by the mid-19th century. And, of course, by the time you get to the 1880s and 1890s and there are titanic industrial disputes, the union activists of those days recognised the importance not just of industrial organisation in workplaces and industries but also in the colonial parliaments at the political level and they decided to create the Australian Labor Party and of course in the 1890s and that relationship between unions and labour of course has endured to today. It's always the subject of commentary and discussion and debate and 
uh, efforts to modernise and reform and I'll say a few things about that in a short while. But nonetheless, it's been an enormously important partnership for this country. Thousands, countless thousands of people have trodden this path as union activists, uh, oftentimes becoming Labor politicians. I, uh, one of the first, well, the first union that I was a full-time official of was the Waterside Workers Federation. It was formed a long way back, around the time of Federation, and there were individual uh, colonial-based branches prior to that for many years. But two of the initial uh, leaders of the union were Andrew Fisher, who became a Prime Minister of this country, and Billy Hughes, a rather more notorious figure in the Labor movement, but also a leader of the Waterside Workers' Federation. But John Curtin, Ben Chifley, Bob Hawke and numerous others have trodden the path of being union officials and becoming Labor parliamentarians and Prime Ministers and Ministers uh, over the course of the last 100 years and more uh, since Federation and they have made a great contribution to this country. So that I say all of this to try and put in a little bit of context without being too grandiose about it, uh, the book that, that uh, I have now written with Mark Davis, a colleague of mine who worked with me in Parliament, who was a journalist with uh, Fairfax for many years and a press gallery journalist. We've known each other for over 25 years and I'm enormously grateful to Mark uh, for taking on what I couldn't have done, frankly, individually, and that is to write it all myself. We spent a lot of time, for those of you wondering how it was done, we're a bit similar in character and he's, he understands me well and vice versa. Um, his nickname is Rowdy. I'm a more quiet type, but, <laughs> but it's an ironic nickname that Mark has. <coughs> but we sat down quietly and uh, essentially Mark interviewed me about the events that are contained in the book and, and produced drafts of each chapter and then I spent a lot of time reworking them and ensuring that they reflected my voice. But the, the book is really just one small story. You know, at a very finite time in our history that hopefully just provides a bit of a glimpse of at least one person's life in the Labor movement and what it means to me, but that shines a bit wider picture about what the Labor movement is about and particularly over the last 50-odd years uh, when at least I've been conscious of being in the world and, uh, and the events going on around me. And I grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney at a place called Rooty Hill, a notorious for the RSL club, which is next to the high school that I attended. Uh, but it was a very different place in the 50s and 60s than it is now, for those of you who may know it. Um, it was a semi-rural settling area uh, for uh, southern and eastern European migrants, uh, people who were refugees after the Second World War. There are an enormous number of ethnicities and and languages spoken at school uh, that I attended, my own family, my surname's French. Um, my mother's family originated from far northern New South Wales and were originally Italian migrants. It was just one of those typical Australian melting pots where we're all turned out into Aussies at the end of the education process. Uh, it was a pretty poor area. There were new housing developments being put in place by the uh, Housing Commission in New South Wales and my father was a winemaker for Penfolds at the Minchinbury estate. He was a champagne maker, as had been my grandfather and my great-grandfather, and they all worked at one point in time or other, essentially the chief winemakers at, at Minchinbury for most of the uh, 20th century. And during all of that period of time, of course I grew up in the Vietnam War uh, during that period of time, the Cold War, we've witnessed over all that period <coughs> that I've been around, as many of you have, uh, numerous conflicts internationally, dramatic change, the opening up of our economy, um, a move from protection and paternalism as, a, as key settings of public policy to an openness and confidence about our role in the world. Uh, thanks very much to uh, many of the great contributors like Gough Whitham to public policy over uh, the last number of decades. But there's been a tremendous period of change. Of course, when many of us entered the workforce, just if I can, uh, if you'll lend me the 
discretion of having a look around the audience. There are a few people of my generation and older. Things like fax machines were completely unheard of. The teaching aids that were available, of course, were primitive compared to what is available in classrooms today. There's just been a most dramatic period of change over the last 40 or 50 years. And, of course, the labour movement has changed with it. Andrew, in one of his books, uh, just made the observation that in that fairly short period of time, historically, too, since the 60s and 70s, the per capita income in this country has trebled. (coughs) Living standards have improved enormously. But inequality has widened as well. And the values that I spoke of of the labour movement, of course, they are enduring, but the policy responses to pursue those values change with the changing nature of our society and our economy and the changing nature of political debate in this country. But the values are enduring. So notwithstanding all that change, um, part of my life, and a large part of which has been spent in the labour movement, pursuing those values, the nature of the fight changes. But one thing that I can assure you is that it is always a fight. And do you not need a greater reminder of that than contemporary politics? I'm not here to make a speech about the government and its policies, but a lot of people, for example, remarked to me how terrible the budget was. Um, well, and, and that it's you know, quite a difficult time. Some people have made this observation to me just before we came into the theatre. You know, that's difficult. Maybe it's time to leave the country. Well, I don't believe so. All it is is the swings and roundabouts of political struggle in this country as people of values, and Tony Abbott, of course, is a very values-driven politician, um, struggle for political power and to impose their values and pursue policies that reflect them uh, on the um, body politic. But if you believe in what you you know, want to fight for, what, what policy pursuits represent your own values, you have to fight. And that's why I called the book The Fights of My Life because that's what I've fundamentally learnt. If you believe in it, you fight for it. And sometimes, like carbon pricing, something which nearly killed me um, doing and nearly killed my staff, such a difficult public policy reform, sometimes, of course the public policy elements of the work that you do, they ebb and flow and there are setbacks, but you don't give up. You have to fight to do what you think is right and to bring about in public policy. And that's pretty much uh, all that I've experienced and the things that I've done. I've enjoyed the benefit of free tertiary education by virtue of a Labor government, Gough Whitlam, I worked as a coal miner for some time out at Lithgow and I joined the Coal Miners Union at 19. I became a mining engineer, but my experience in the Coal Miners Federation was extremely formative. I came from a (coughs) labour-oriented family, but once I found the collective environment of union organisation in a practical way in an underground coal mine, (coughs) there was no looking back. I wasn't headed for management ranks. I was heading for a labour movement career. I became an occupational health and safety activist. I worked on youth unemployment uh, in Western Sydney in the early 1980s. I became ultimately in 1987 the first person to be employed by the Waterside Workers' Federation as distinct from a rank-and-file member being elected. Um, The first person, and only the second, but the first since 1958, and uh, that immersed me in... Uh, left-wing industrial politics in an extremely tough and uncompromising environment. I moved to Melbourne uh, in the early 1990s and I climbed the ladder at the ACTU in a very competitive and tough environment at a time when the Accord was in place and the ACTU was in an immensely powerful position to influence public policy. I ended up... uh, returning to my uh, formative ground in the industrial environment in the waterfront dispute in 1998 and then assumed the leadership of the ACTU the following year, where, with a hostile federal government, that is a a federal government uh, led by John Howard that was not supportive of trade union organisation, then had to chart a new strategy for trade unions uh, to organise 
uh, also, of course, in a dramatically changed in industrial and economic environment with the impact of technology. I ended up <coughs> leading a lot of campaigns, vicious mining disputes, as the mining industry sought to change their industrial settings, the collapse of ANSET, the compensation struggle for victims of James Hardy, then the Your Rights at Work campaign from 2005 to 2007 that helped uh, bring about the election of a Labor government of, of uh, which I became a part. In uh, Parliament, as many of you may be aware, I worked in the defence portfolio, I became climate change minister, I had the industry and innovation portfolios and ultimately, as was popularised in the media recently and, and that I discuss in the book, uh, Julia Gillard offered to stand aside if I would stand for the Labor leadership in about June last year. Uh, an offer, of course, uh, one that was very humbling uh, but which I declined for a number of reasons. So I've had an interesting time of it and um, I hope that you find the book interesting for those of you that, that uh, uh, care to read it. And I guess um, what it is, you know, what arises out of that is, well, why would you do it? Why would you do it? And the answer I've already provided to you, and that's because I have a very strong set of values uh, about fairness and justice. I believe that it's not that much good holding them and not fighting for them. And so when I see injustices, I've just gone out and fought for what I believed in. And the Labor movement's been the great vehicle uh, for that fight, and that's why I became a part of it. The waterfront dispute in 1998, of course, was an extremely difficult industrial dispute. And what was fundamentally at stake there was not about the rates at which cranes move containers off ships, as important as that is. It was not about whether the wharfies are bludgers, as important as that may have been in the nature of the political discussion. It's not the case. Um, but what was fundamentally about was the right for people to organise, to combine and to negotiate their pay and conditions. The very same issue that that convict, James Strater, had confronted in 1822 and for which he received 500 lashes. That dispute was fundamentally about the right of working people to join together in a trade union and to collectively bargain to pursue their interests with their employer. That's what it was about. We never went into that dispute to fight for indefensible work practices, and we didn't. And I can assure you that John Coombs, a very close friend and colleague, uh, the leader of the union in that dispute, um, he and I had known each other for many years and there was never once that we didn't go into a meeting populated oftentimes by more people than who are here this evening um, and argued those issues out with the rank and file members of that union. And the reason that we were successful in that struggle was because we weren't defending indefensible work practices. It's because we were fighting for those values and practices that are so important for justice in our society and that is why we won a majority of community support. At the start of that dispute, around 80% of community opinion was against the union and its members. Uh, Peter Reith was a great propagandist and he'd articulated the government's position with clarity and force for about a year before that dispute really erupted and had won community support. By the time that dispute concluded, and even at the peak of that struggle in 1998, we had turned that around completely to about 80 or 85% community support for the union's position because John Coombs in particular was able to encapsulate what it was about and appeal to people's values to win that support. It was a, a, a really tough experience for me but I learned a number of things that were very useful to me in in later work experiences like that, in major events. First of all, the importance of being organised. It might be self-evident, but we had 2,000 people out of a job. We needed to support them and their families and we raised millions of dollars from other union members and paid people $200 a week to sustain them for many months during that dispute. It takes massive organisation to do that massive effort all across the country. These people were spread around every port throughout the country. 
we sat down too and methodically worked through our communication strategy and messages to ensure that we did it in the most effective way we possibly could. And I learned a lot about that that helped me uh, later on in politics in particular. Uh, but we organised many different aspects. The um, use of technology to ensure that we got people to picket lines when there were um, key moments of, of pressure to, to ensure that we uh, were able to meet it. Um, and ultimately, of course, we're able to negotiate a collective agreement and the pay and conditions for the waterside workers and improve the productivity on the waterfront. But we said MUA here to stay and the MUA is still there. And I've noticed that Peter Reith is gone and Chris Corrigan's gone and John Howard's gone, but the enduring organisation of the workforce is still there. So that was a tremendous thing to be involved in. The collapse of ANSET was another thing. Last night I was having a dinner with some business people in Sydney and one of the fellows there said uh, that his wife passed on uh, her regards and um, to thank me because she'd been an ANSET employee. Even though there are only 15 or 16,000 people in ANSET, they're all over the country and you keep meeting them. At the time the airline collapsed, uh, there were... Uh, that number of employees with about $780 million of employee entitlements that were gone, in essence. Air New Zealand, which owned the company, of course, was over the ditch and um, I was wondering how on earth we'd get any money out of them. Uh, people were extremely worried and the typical thing that happens in an insolvency like that is that the banks line up and, of course, under the Corporations Act, they get their money first and employees can wait for a few years and they might get a few cents in the dollar. Well, I'm buggered if we were going to have that. This was too big and we'd been fighting these sort of insolvencies and for the rights of employees to have their entitlements paid for many years and we recognised this was such a large insolvency that this was the time for us to really uh, take it on and to try and bring about some public policy change to improve the rights of employees. In that dispute... We got ahead of the banks and we got people paid 98 cents in the dollar. And it took 10 years and took a huge struggle at the time, but I was sitting in my ministerial office in Parliament House a couple of years back in 2011 when the administrators put out the final press release saying they'd made the final distribution to the ANSET staff and they'd got, as I said, 98 cents in the dollar. And that's how long sometimes those things take. But we changed things forever. Out of that dispute, we also won what's now called the Fair Entitlements Guarantee so that for a lot of working-class people, of course, working in small and medium-sized businesses in particular that go into insolvency, there is now a safety net for them to make sure that their entitlements are paid. Many of you would know. You save up your annual leave, you've got your long service leave after working with an employer for a long period of time and you lose all of it if the company goes into receivership. And out of that dispute, we ensured that that doesn't happen to people again. Then we moved on to the James Hardy campaign in 2004. I'd been associated with asbestos issues for many years. You might recall I mentioned that I was an occupational health and safety activist in the early 80s. I wrote booklets about it. We'd had a lot of asbestos at the winery where I grew up and... My father was conscious of it at the time. I'd seen many waterside workers die of asbestosis and mesothelioma when I was at the union. When I found that James Hardy had skipped the country, reincorporated and established its headquarters in a little office in the Netherlands, most of its business activity was in the United States and that it had taken its assets overseas, left behind an inadequate amount in a... Uh, in a trust uh, for current and future victims of its products, um, I was as outraged as you could possibly be. You know, and again, this was a problem that we'd had with so many companies over the years. It was corporate malfeasance on a dreadful scale where people's lives were fundamentally affected. If you get an asbestos-related disease, it's an appalling and shocking disease that's debilitating and for mesothelioma sufferers in particular, it is a shocking way to die. And I had seen people die of it. And as leader of the ACTU, we were not going to have it. 
and we decided, albeit that we had hardly any weaponry, if you like, available to us in that fight, no legal capacity, nothing, just by harnessing the sheer outrage of the community were we able to bring sufficient pressure on that company uh, to establish a compensation fund. I can't remember the precise amount now offhand but the, uh, that they had left behind. I think it was something in the order of $250 million. We very quickly established that the net present value of the liability was more like $1.5 billion at that time in 2004 and ultimately we did a settlement for that uh, that's funded out of the free cash flow of the company in the United States and I think since that settlement they've now paid something in the order of $700 million into the fund that was established to ensure they meet their liabilities. Now you cannot achieve things like that without the labour movement, now, without trade unions organising, without people in workplaces organising, getting behind a common cause and bringing a company to justice. Uh, that is the thing of which I am most proud of my involvement with others in the labour movement. But we then went along and, and in 2004, very shortly after uh, that campaign with James Hardy, um, John Howard won the 2004 election very emphatically against Mark Latham. To the extent that John Howard emerged with control of the House of Reps and the Senate. And I knew then, of course, that he would enact... Um, dramatic changes to the industrial relations system that would affect working people's rights. That had been his values and belief all through his political career. So it was no surprise when he produced the work choices legislation. This drove a dramatic change in uh, our thinking at the ACTU about our political involvement. Trade unions largely leave it to the Labor Party and the Labor caucus and the Labor leadership to conduct the political campaigns. Uh, to be frank, I was pretty disappointed with the decision of the Labor caucus to install Mark Latham. He's a very talented man, but I'm a great admirer of the, well, a great supporter of the importance of experience in political leadership. And I was very fond of Kim Beasley and I respected him as an experienced political leader. And I thought after that 2004 election that we needed, as a trade union movement, to be far more active in politics over the course of the next three years for a very good purpose. Not for a gratuitous one, just to be involved in politics, but for the reality that John Howard enacted dramatic reductions and removal of protections for working people's rights in a way that deeply offended labour movement values. He attacked the right to collectively organise. He attacked the right to be represented by a trade union. He attacked democratic rights in the workplace. He attacked the safety net. He made some pretty bad calls and he paid for it. But we made sure he paid for it. And I don't disrespect John Howard, but I disrespect what he did with that legislation. And we set out in 2005 to conduct essentially a three-year campaign right through to the 2007 election. We mobilised tens of millions of dollars uh, from trade union members. We utilised uh, what's now I think called crowdsourcing uh, but I sent a couple of my staff over to the United States to look at what was then I think moveon.com. Uh, uh, we were conscious of the establishment of GetUp in Australia and I applied all of those internet campaigning techniques at the ACTU and we made large investments in it to the extent that we were able to fund a $45,000 billboard over the Tullamarine Freeway in two days of small campaign donation fundraising uh, through an email list, a technique which is now pretty common in most campaign organisations. But we ran that campaign on the basis of values and that is why we won it. And towards the end of that campaign, I felt that I had done probably as much as I could do at the ACTU. I'd had many years in the trade union movement and I felt I wanted to be part of a Labor government. As a Labor person, I had been a member for many, many years and I felt I wanted to be part of a Labor government and I'm proud that I made that choice. And in government, of course, as I mentioned earlier, I had the opportunity to do uh, quite a lot of things. It was a great privilege. Uh, 
to be in the government. A lot of commentary, of course, uh, about my book so far is, is a bit about the Rudd-Gillard period and all of the tensions out of that. That's perfectly understandable, but I can assure you that it's not a, a substantial part of the book at all. And I also don't like people who write books and um, you know, diminish uh, the standing of their colleagues or betray confidences. Um, it's a pretty common thing in a lot of political biographies these days, I note. Um, but I do, I think it's important also to be honest and frank, and there are some honest and frank comments in there about the effect of the Rudd-Gillard struggle. I'm an uh, admirer of Julia Gillard's. I like her as a person, and she's got the right values to have been a great Labor leader. You didn't see the best of Julia Gillard uh, as Prime Minister, and I make a few critical observations about Kevin Rudd in there too. But that's not the major part of the book, but there are important lessons to be learnt, I think, out of that, some of them pretty old ones, and that is disunity is a terrible thing for a political party. How on earth you can, can govern while internally you're pulling each other apart and you're deeply divided and where individuals' ambitions or their motivations for revenge are greater than the Labor Party itself. That's just a disaster and it can't happen again. You know, there, there needs to be a unity of purpose um, rebuilt within the Labor Party and I'm really happy to see that it is. I'm a great supporter of Bill Shorten's. I, I wish him all of the best. He's taken on the most difficult job in Australian politics. Few people come through that unscathed uh, but he has the capacity. I've known him for many, many years with the support and unity of his colleagues in the caucus and with the support and unity of the wider Labor movement uh, to succeed. And I sincerely uh, would love to see him succeed. You'll be surprised to hear from me that I would much rather Bill be Prime Minister than Tony Abbott. <laughs> <coughs> but we brought a lot of, of commentary upon ourselves in government because of that division. And unfortunately it disguised some of the great things that I believe uh, Labor did under the Rudd and Gillard governments, not the least of which. In fact, the greatest achievement, I think, was the way in which the Rudd government, and particularly Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard and Wayne Swan and Lindsay Tanner, responded <coughs> excuse me, to the global financial crisis. We kept growing in this country. Our economy kept growing in this country when every other advanced economy fell into recession. We took very important steps to provide guarantees to bank deposits and bank loans and to support banks and their borrowings in international capital markets to keep this economy funded and to keep it growing. We instituted some great Keynesian uh, measures to stimulate employment and save hundreds of thousands of people's jobs to keep them in jobs and to keep their families uh, well-being. Even in my own electorate, to reduce it to something pretty practical, I represented the western suburbs of Newcastle and the western side of Lake Macquarie. They're very poor suburbs. In that electorate, many of the public schools had not had any capital investment of any consequence since the 1950s, and I kid you not. There's a large Aboriginal population in the electorate and the schools are in an appalling condition. They just had not had investment for many years. And people deserve better. Those kids deserve better. We pumped money into the school system in an unprecedented way that meant that the educational facilities and the educational opportunities for those kids in working class areas, very poor families, you know, had a huge boost we took that opportunity through the global financial crisis and it kept people in jobs in the local economy. We built social infrastructure. We built social housing. Many people, again, in the communities that I represented were on very long public housing queues, had to wait years, people with disabilities, and even then, if they got into public housing, they were not appropriate for them. We built purpose-built social housing uh, for such people on a very large scale. We invested in health. We made a, a great contribution to the society during that period of time and it kept the economy ticking over. I'm tremendously proud to have been part of a government. I had a very small role in it. But to be part of a government 
with that achievement. But if you look beyond that to many of the other things undertaken in that period in the environment portfolio, our ministers and particularly Tony Burke undertook really historic reforms, the declaration of marine parks around the country for example, the resolution of the long-standing Tassie forests problems were enormous breakthrough. Um, there were a huge number of other very important environmental gains. The investment in education more broadly. Uh, in higher education, I think we lifted the number of students at universities by 40% uh, during our period in government. It's the great enabler. It's the great equality of opportunity that is so important for a democratic society. Uh, we went about doing that in a methodical way. It wasn't without contest and discussion with Vice-Chancellors, of course, about some of the policy measures, but great changes were made. The health system we invested in dramatically. Again, in my electorate, for example, there was one uh, GP to every 2,000 people in my electorate. In the cities and uh, in, in areas like Canberra, it's more like 1 to 700 or 1 to 800. You have to wait ages to get to see a GP. Uh, the emergency services at hospitals in a region like the Hunter are generally clogged up. If you get crook and you've got no money, you've got no hope you know, of getting access readily to health services. We addressed that in a very dramatic way uh, and in a way that those communities appreciated. That's why I went into Parliament and that's why you know, I was proud to be part of that government, to do things like that. Those are just a few of the things. But one of the things that I'm most proud of, it's going to surprise you to hear, is that we did act on climate change. We had a go at it in the first term of government with credit to Kevin Rudd and my colleague Penny Wong. We put together an emissions trading scheme and it was defeated by, of course, uh, by Tony Abbott assuming the leadership of the Liberal Party. We had reached agreement with Malcolm Turnbull as leader. It basically cost him the leadership of the Liberal Party. But along with Tony Abbott voting against it was the Greens. And you might well ask five years on why. Why did they defeat action on climate change given it's a key issue of interest to them? Well, they would say at the time that, A, Labor didn't talk to them enough about it. Well, I'm sorry, you know, but some of their policy positions were so stupid you couldn't break through it. <laughs> I don't think that's a reason to vote against what was put before the, the Senate at that time. Uh, but they'd also say, well... The, the scheme that we put up, the Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme, was too brown, was too pro-business, pro-industry, too soft. Well, the scheme that we did reach agreement with the Greens on, I'm sorry if you're a Green in here, but you need to hear some of the truth. <laughs> the scheme that we did agree with them, that they agreed to, when I negotiated it with Christine Milne and Bob Brown and others, was more generous to industry than the CPRS, which they'd voted down in 2009, was more generous to industry because I felt that we needed to recalibrate it and I'll cop the criticism for it. But we needed to ensure that we got successful passage and ultimately the Greens agreed to that. So why block it in 2009? You know, I think that's, that's emerged now with the benefit of hindsight as a really pivotal period in Australian politics, not just in climate policy but in Australian politics because Labor also had the opportunity after the defeat of that legislation to call a double dissolution and we should have and we didn't but we should have and we would have defeated Tony Abbott at that time. He was a new opposition leader regarded by many to be a little odd you hadn't got the time to feel as endeared towards him as you, you feel now. Um, but we would have won that election, I believe, on an issue that we fervently believed needed to be acted upon in legislation in the Parliament. And that was a mistake uh, that Labor made at that time. And, of course, with the change in the uh, leadership of the Labor Party and the Prime Ministership, the terrible events of the 2010 election campaign, the leaks designed to damage from within our own party, designed to damage Julia Gillard and the Labor Party in an election campaign, a disgrace that I can't forgive, that helped land us in minority government where we needed to negotiate agreements to form government that then 
um, hamstrung us uh, during that second term of government. You know, that's a pretty significant period of history, uh, late 2009. But nonetheless, we went about uh, formulating, reformulating our climate policy in that term and, of course, it came to be known as the notorious, evil, terrible, destructive carbon tax. And that's a great pity. We lost the politics of that uh, very dramatically. And as, as Colin said in introducing me, I do bear a lot of the responsibility for that. The reality was that inside the negotiating room, Labor wanted an emissions trading scheme and that is again what we advanced. Um, the Greens would never accept a floating price emissions trading scheme uh, to start you know, with a floating price that couldn't be accurately predicted other than by reference to international markets uh, because if you were to start an ETS from day one with a floating carbon price, you would also need to establish the emissions reduction levels, the targeted emissions reductions, that the ETS would need to achieve uh, by, for example, 2020. And we could never agree, that is, Labor could never agree with the Greens on the targeted emissions reductions. My own view is that they'd kill the economy, the uh, emissions reductions that the Greens were always advancing. And they wouldn't agree to the emissions reductions that were Labor policy. So I had to find a way through that impasse. And the way through that impasse was to start the scheme with three years of a fixed carbon price. And that, of course, became the carbon tax and, of course, attracted the political notoriety that it did. I mean, Tony Abbott's a pretty good campaigner himself as he demonstrated over that issue. But it was that three-year fixed price period that helped us get through the the impossibility of us agreeing on emissions reduction targets for an ETS at the outset. During the initial three-year period, um, we decided we would hand it to an independent agency, the Climate Change Authority, to recommend to government what the emissions reduction target should ultimately be. And that's what got us agreement. And this is just public policy making. This is ultimately what you have to do. It's a world of reality, of pragmatic reality, of trying to get things through Parliament. I mean, if you thought that it was pretty wild uh, dealing with Tony Windsor and Bob Catter and Rob Oakeshott and the Greens and a few others in that period of Parliament, look at the uh, interesting state of affairs now. <laughs> you know, I really wish Joe Hockey all the best. <laughs> I was very sad to read on the front page of the Financial Review today that he feels that he's been let down by the business community. Can you? <laughs> Can you imagine that? <laughs> Labor never had that experience at all. <laughs> they loved carbon pricing from day one. Always told the truth about it. Yeah. And I really wish that the media wouldn't criticise Joe. It's very hurtful. <laughs> so I wish him all the best in dealing with Clive Palmer, who's only got the national interest at heart. <laughs> he has no business interest or conflict uh, to manage there and with his cohorts in the Senate, they appear to be on top of public policy in an extraordinarily <laughs> detailed way. So I reckon, you know, put your seatbelts on. <laughs> it's going to be a very interesting period. And they've repealed, of course, the carbon price, uh, the, the carbon tax, the emissions trading scheme. It had been in operation for two years and we're still here. It's extraordinary, isn't it? <laughs> when house prices were going to go through the roof, the economy was going to be destroyed and it was all terror and destruction. Of course, what we found after two years of that fixed price uh, for carbon pollution, which, by the way, just to refresh your memory, does only one thing. It asks the largest emitters of greenhouse gases in the economy to buy a permit for every tonne of pollution that they put into the atmosphere. That's all that it is. A large greenhouse gas emitter has to buy a permit from the government and the carbon price is the price of the permit. And guess what? It worked. After two years, emissions, particularly in the electricity generating sector, were falling and it didn't destroy the economy nor jobs nor our society as all the doomsayers, particularly News Corporation, predicted. Now, I'm not despondent about the fact that it's been repealed because I come back to my fundamental thesis... Everything that's worth fighting for is worth fighting for. And the fight to act on climate change when the empirical evidence 
and the science is mounting and mounting and we are a wealthy country, one of the largest emitters in the advanced economies, one of the largest in the world, the highest emitter per capita amongst all the advanced economies, when we've got a responsibility to be part of international action on climate change, you know, the fight will go on. And for those of you that believe passionately in this issue, do not be despondent. This is merely a setback. And like everything worth fighting for, you have to keep going. And I'm sure that the work that we did in designing and implementing that carbon price scheme uh, will form the template for future public policy action on that issue. And there's many other things worth fighting for too. You know, the job's not done. And for those uh, young people who are here in the audience, um, you know, I'd say please be involved and please stand up for what you believe in. There's lots of great things that we need to do. I mean, I've got a few personal obsessions. They might not be yours, but things like becoming a republic are still important. Uh, I think we've got the self-confidence to stand up, don't we, you know, for ourselves and have our own head of state, as complicated as it might be. But there are so many other issues that are worth battling on for. You know, Medicare is a great achievement uh, for this country and I don't like to see it eroded in any way, shape or form. We need to have a debate about the appropriate uh, methods and forms of taxation in our society to be able to fund the things that we like. I did see Joe Hockey mention that he'd like to see us get to a 21% company tax rate as per the UK. Well, you know, tax reductions also come at a cost to tax expenditures and it's a legitimate thing for a community to debate what things you would like to be funded from the taxation system. And healthcare is so important, as is education. And I've always found that people are prepared to contribute in order to be able to fund adequate measures in health and education. So there's great things to be done uh, still, great reasons to be involved. Um, I've still got a bit of go in me, not finished yet. I know a number of people remarked to me how disappointed they were that I left and I genuinely appreciate that sentiment. But I've done 30 years uh, of pretty hard yards in the labour movement and uh, a lot of that has entailed me being away from home a lot, uh, particularly while I was in Parliament. I worked out in my diary when I was writing the book that I was only home two to four days a month. Um, I missed a lot of my you know, kids growing up, as many people who work a lot do. Uh, my parents are you know, well into their 80s um, and facing the reality of, of nursing home care um, and I had a couple of health issues myself that I wasn't managing well and I wanted to be able to you know, have a relationship with my partner Juanita and not be away all the time. So they were genuinely personal motivations that led me to decide not to take up Julia Gillard's uh, suggestion and also to leave Parliament and to leave politics. Um, I'm still the same person and I have the same values and I look for ways to contribute uh, but you know, ultimately we're all human beings. None of that is to say though that others shouldn't make sacrifices and fight hard <laughs> <laughs> and I encourage you to do so and thanks very much for your attention tonight. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.